This afternoon, brothers and sisters, let's turn again in God's Word together. We turn to the last chapter of the prophecy of Micah, of Jonah, pardon me. Jonah chapter 4. And we'll read together that whole chapter, which serves as both our reading as well as our text. Jonah 4, page 984 of your Pew Bible. And after we've read from this passage, we'll sing in response again from Psalm 99, this time stanzas 5 and 6. Hear the word of the Lord in Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort, or as the footnote says, his evil. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. As I mentioned before, the text for the sermon is what we read together in Jonah chapter 4. After we've heard from God's word this afternoon, we'll sing in response Psalm 145, stanzas 3 and 5. Psalm 
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, those among us familiar with tennis, at least 1970s, 1980s tennis, will recall the American tennis star John McEnroe, famous not only for his skill, but also for his on-court fits of rage, often involving smashed rackets and verbal tirades. One incident especially has become entrenched in sports history, where an umpire made a questionable line call and McEnroe shouted a number of times, you cannot be serious. Have you ever said those words? More importantly, have you ever felt that way toward God? If you're honest, your answer has to be yes. And if your answer is yes, then the words of Jonah 4 are for you as well. We are not that different from Jonah. You and I come across moments where the wisdom of God doesn't seem wise to us, or where the love of God doesn't seem good to us, or where the grace of God just doesn't seem right to us. And our frequent response is, you cannot be serious. We may not all show our anger by way of verbal tirades or breaking things like Johnny Mac. No, for the most part, we can be quite subtle, carefully concealing our emotions before others while a, a storm rages inside our hearts. We withdraw from God, turn into ourselves. We blame our circumstances as the cause of our anger and think that if only God had written our story according to our plan, life would be good. The main problem, of course, is not with our circumstances, but with our hearts. Our circumstances simply expose a heart condition that needs divine surgery. No, we're not that different from Jonah. Of all the books of the Bible, Jonah has the most unexpected and overlooked final chapter. The book doesn't end when Jonah is released from the fish. No, it doesn't even end after he went and preached to Nineveh. No, there's one more chapter where the real lessons of the entire narrative are finally revealed. The repentance of Nineveh is not the main plot of the book. The main plot is God sovereignly, graciously pursues his own reluctant, angry servant. And the question that presents itself at the close of this book is, will God's servant, will you and I, rejoice in who our sovereign, gracious God really is? I preach to you this word of the Lord. 
The Lord uses the withered plant to teach grace to his angry prophets. We'll see three things. First, the motivation for this teaching. Secondly, the method of this teaching. Thirdly, the message in this teaching. So first, the motivation for this teaching. By way of numbers, Jonah was the most successful prophet in the Old Covenant. Five words from him was enough to bring an enormous pagan city, notorious for its violence, to enormous repentance. Nothing short of astonishing. Any minister or missionary today would give his right arm for such a response to a lifetime of ministry, let alone to just a handful of words. Think of the headlines this might make in The Spectator if this happened in Hamilton. Well, this turn of events would lead us to expect the book to end in chapter 3 on a note of triumph with something like, and Jonah returned to his own land with great rejoicing. But no. The holy angels of heaven were rejoicing over sinners coming to repentance. But Jonah 4 verse 1 reads, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, this reaction is inexplicable. Why does Jonah melt down in rage at the repentance of the Ninevites and the Lord's relenting of the disaster he had threatened? We get a hint already in the first verse. You see a footnote here in the ESV, which actually offers the better translation. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Jonah is not willing to let God define good and evil. Evil is a key word in the book, and it's, it's easier to see that in the original than in the English. For the one Hebrew word for evil is translated in two different ways. It's a word that covers both personal evil, so the sinful things that you do, and circumstantial evil, bad things, disasters that happen to you. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord tells Jonah to call out against Nineveh for their evil, their sinful behavior has come up before me. But then in chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 1, the focus shifts from the evil of the Ninevites to the evil, the trouble in which Jonah and the sailors find themselves in the storm. The sailors cast lots to know on whose account this evil, trouble, has come upon them, an evil that disappears when Jonah is tossed overboard. You fast forward to chapter 3, where the king urged everyone to turn from their evil ways, their sinful practices. And then in turn, God relented from the evil, the disaster he had threatened. 
But now Jonah is fuming over the city's deliverance, something he judges to be not simply evil, but exceedingly evil. You see what that means, beloved? Jonah is more upset with Nineveh's deliverance, exceedingly evil, than the Lord was with Nineveh's sin, evil. Jonah finds Nineveh's deliverance worse than the divine judgment that had threatened its existence. When the deliverance of Nineveh becomes a reality, Jonah responds with immense anger. Literally, it was hot to him. Something that will come back later. Now, this turn of events was not a surprise to Jonah. That's what he says in verse 2. He prays to God again, and he complains. He throws a tempered tantrum. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah's got a real problem with God and God's compassion. I had it all right from the beginning. I just knew you would do something like this. Well, of course Jonah knew this. That list of divine attributes was revealed by the Lord most explicitly already in Exodus 34 to Moses. That's where God basically describes himself. I'm not an overbearing tyrant. I'm a compassionate and gracious God. I'm sympathetic. I forgive. I relent. This is the kind of God Jonah knows he represents. A God who relents from reigning disaster. Jonah's got no problem with God's love and mercy in itself. But he simply hates love and mercy shown to Gentiles, to those he thinks don't deserve it, especially to evil Gentiles like the Ninevites. Jonah doesn't care for God's definition of good and evil. He didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. He wanted them to be wiped off the map. Jonah wants to see divine justice. But he sees divine mercy, and he is boiling under his collar. He even has the nerve to hear to quote the Bible back to God to justify his rebellion. I fled to Tarshish because I knew who you are. Isn't that twisted? Jonah's theology about God was correct, but he uses it to legitimate his rebellion against God. And yet, before we really beat up on Jonah with his big flaws, we have to admit that we do much the same. We can use correct theology to support evil. 
What about using male headship to mistreat our wives? Or what about using the biblical command to be compassionate as an excuse to avoid having to confront sin? Or perhaps we might argue that because the Lord is sovereign in evangelism, we don't have to take the trouble to engage our neighbors with the gospel. We all have a tendency to read the Bible selectively. We can undermine the Bible's authority so that we don't have to obey it. We can follow the lead of Satan in twisting the Bible in order to resist God and his will. In the case of Jonah, misusing the Bible doesn't end up bringing him any joy. Rather, it takes him to the brink of despair. Verse 3 reveals that his real problem was at the deepest level of his heart. It says, therefore, now, Jonah says this, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <clears throat> he basically says, I'm not going to serve you, Lord, if you don't give me what I want. Jonah's explosive anger about gospel mercy shows he's basically willing to abandon his relationship with God if he doesn't get what he wants. He would rather die than see God display his grace broadly. If only Jonah was God, how different things would be. But now his reaction to God's grace is over my dead body. Perhaps the best commentary on Jonah's attitude is found in the parable of the prodigal son. Recall that the prodigal son comes home after squandering his inheritance in shameful living. But as he approached home, his father ran out to meet him, embraced him, and brought him to the house and threw a bash for him. But the older son is watching all this, and with his arms folded and his eyes looking down his long nose, he resents the mercy shown to his sibling. He gets hot under the collar. He complains, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate my faithful service with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf. Do you hear Jonah's attitude in the elder brother's words? How could God show so much mercy and generous grace to a people as wicked as the Ninevites? You extend grace too easily, O Lord. So yes, this all gives motivation for further instruction in the school of grace. For we can't miss the great irony in Jonah's disappointment. The very mercy that Jonah wanted withheld from Nineveh is the same mercy that kept Jonah alive. 
If it were not for God's grace, Jonah would have been a dead man long ago. He could have drowned in the sea, or been digested by the fish, or dismembered by an angry Ninevite mob. And here is a man who has received grace upon grace, but has apparently forgotten all this, failing to show the same grace to others. Now, and I don't like this any more than you do, unfortunately, you and I also have this in common with Jonah. It's among regular seasoned church goers that God's grace toward others produces resentment in our hearts. We look at the world and we would sometimes love for the Lord to flex his arms at the world that rebels against him. We can have the kind of attitude that just doesn't understand why God would even bother giving a second chance to corrupt politicians to prostitutes, homosexuals, pedophiles, and rapists. Or to bring it closer to home, what do you think when someone you know gets off easy for their sin? Perhaps even someone who's sinned against you. Surely you wish, at least at some point, that God should make them suffer for it. Or what about cases where someone's even asked you for forgiveness for something they've done, but you're still so reluctant to extend grace and compassion to them? That teacher who once brought your child to tears, or that colleague or friend or family member who stabbed you in the back. Oh, sure, they've asked for forgiveness, but how can I? How easily we can want to hold on to things, all the while forgetting those times in our own lives where we've done terrible things and the Lord gave us a second, third, fourth chance. That offering of second and third chances happens in this story too. Let's see that in our second point where we pay attention to the way that the Lord teaches his prophet a lesson in grace. The Lord engages his self-deceived prophet in a counseling session. He asks a great question. Verse 4, do you do well to be angry? It's just three words in Hebrew. Questions from God are found more often in Scripture, and they're often God's method of teaching. It started in the Garden of Eden. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this that you have done? God here doesn't just say to Jonah, Oh, smarten up. Stop burning with anger, would you? No, he wants Jonah to look inward to examine his own heart. He wants Jonah to assess his own feelings. Jonah, are you justified in your anger? Ask yourself, why am I angry? Indeed, it is a great counseling question, as Paul Tripp has pointed out. 
One that we ought to ask ourselves whenever we find anger growing within us. Do I do well to be angry? If Jonah had examined his heart, he might have discovered that his anger flowed from his disappointed expectations about the Lord. How could God let those Assyrians, those mass murderers, off scot-free? But Jonah doesn't take the opportunity to reflect, does he? He refuses to answer God's question. And his next move is to leave the city, to sit down at a place east of the city and build for himself a little booth, a little shade. He's in no hurry to go home. The end of verse 5 says that he sat in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Even though God had declared a stay of execution, Jonah still wants to see what's going to happen to it. Okay, Lord, you gave Nineveh your mercy. Now let's see what happens. And Jonah's hope is that perhaps God would finally figure out his own wrong view of mercy and judge Nineveh after all. Or maybe Jonah is prepared to sit out the waiting period, those 39 or so remaining days, to see if the Ninevites would persevere in repentance. God's response to Jonah's anger is grace once again. Verse 6, The Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. In his grace, God miraculously appoints a giant plant to grow up and to cover Jonah from the scorching Mesopotamian sun. Quite literally in the Hebrew, the plant was appointed to save him from his evil, his disaster. Just as God had appointed the fish to deliver Jonah from evil, so now he appoints the plant for the same purpose. God gives concrete evidence to Jonah that he still looks upon him with compassion. And notice Jonah's reaction. Verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah is hopping mad over the deliverance of the Ninevites, but over his own deliverance, he's rejoicing with great joy. Doesn't that repeat in no uncertain terms <clears throat> the condition of his heart? In the entire narrative, his greatest moment of joy is because of some divinely produced and provided air conditioning. He would be quite satisfied to see a city of 120,000 souls perish in hell, but he's overjoyed by a plant whose only purpose is to give him some shade. Again, let's not be so hard on Jonah. What makes you 
exceedingly glad. Quiet evening to yourself, momentary business success, a great meal. The things that make us exceedingly glad expose our primary values. Your joy, your gladness can be a great tool to help you identify your idolatries more clearly. But what ought to make you rejoice most exceedingly to do the Father's will, which was the food of our Savior. Well, when the next day dawned, the Lord then appoints a worm to gnaw away at Jonah's plant. I love this. This is not just the God of big fish, of massive repentance, fast-growing plants. This is the God of worms as well. The final act of the Lord's sovereignty is so ordinary. He is sovereign, you see, over the tiniest details of life. And also notice that he's sovereign over the trials of life as well as life's joys. Sometimes we're not very clear about his sovereignty over trials. And so we say things like God allowed the disease or that he permitted the accident because we want to distance God from responsibility for difficult things. But the book of Jonah won't let us divide the world so easily. God appointed the plant to shade Jonah. God appointed the worm to kill the plant. And the same God also sovereignly appoints a scorching east wind to combine with the sun's powerful rays to fry the head of Jonah. This wind is especially known throughout the Near East. It's a hot, dusty wind that can reach up to 60 miles an hour. Jonah is now sitting in that blistering sun and scorching wind, and he's faint. And then we come across yet another peek into Jonah's heart. Verse 8, he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Again, we get Jonah's wish for death over life. He's sitting there throwing his hands up in despair saying, Nineveh is blessed. I'm suffering. If this is how things operate, I want to die. You see what's happening? Jonah's heart was hot with anger. But now God is giving an environment that will match the heat in his heart. And this is not because God wants to destroy Jonah. God is pursuing him. He loves him enough to use the external heat to try to get Jonah to see his internal heat. Jonah, do you really want fire from heaven to descend upon those who disobey the Lord? You can't even handle a hot wind. The Lord was challenging Jonah's prideful anger in order to invite him into deeper fellowship with God and see the Lord's amazing patience 
with him. And when the Lord comes back to him with the same counseling question as before, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah explodes with self-justification. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Infamous last words of Jonah in this book. Why don't you just off me? Jonah's heart is so hard that it seems that God's method of instruction, his questions, his use of a withered plant to teach grace, none of it fizzes on Jonah. Anger toward God goes hand in glove with self-exalting thoughts. In fact, whenever we sin, at that moment, we are living out what, is, what we think is important in this world, and we're rejecting what the Lord says is important and right. You know, beloved, I'd love to tell you that Jonah was convicted of his sin, but his heart seemed so hard at this point that neither God's kindness nor his sternness would reach it. Jonah had asked over and over for death. And you or I might have been tempted to give him what he's begging for. But the Lord doesn't. Strikingly and fittingly, the Lord gets the final word in the book. And they are not words of anger, but of mercy and grace. Which takes us to our final point where we see the message in this teaching. Verse 10, the Lord says to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. This plant came completely as a gift to Jonah its total lifespan was no more than 24 hours. And Jonah's feelings for it were pure self-interest. But he's devastated to see it destroyed. And then there's Nineveh. You, Jonah, did not create. You didn't take care of. You didn't nurture the plant. I, however, did all of that for Nineveh. That plant appeared overnight, but Nineveh grew up over many months and years and has very many people and cattle in it. I created, and I tended them for a long time. How much more does it deserve care, concern, pity? It has more than 120,000 people who are entrapped in their sinful lifestyles and who don't know how to get out, who can't tell their right hand from their left. Don't I, as creator, have the right to do with my creation as I please? What pleases me is grace. May I not spare them and show compassion toward them, evil though they are, though they have been. And if the people get grace, 
so do the cattle. A city filled with soul-bearing people and also cattle were of greater significance than Jonah's plant. Well, that phrase, who do not know their right hand from their left, is an exceedingly generous way to view Nineveh. It refers to their spiritual blindness. They are so entrapped, have been so entrapped in their sinful lifestyles that they haven't really the first clue as to the source of their problems or how to get out of them. God's generous spirit toward this city could not be a greater indictment of Jonah's ungenerous narrowness. Yes, also of our narrowness toward people who have no idea what or whom they should be living for. Jonah has to understand God's message that God is absolutely free to act as he pleases. It's much like the, how the Apostle Paul would speak years later. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The Lord's instruction, his question leaves us as readers totally engaged. For we're, of course, not given Jonah's response. Did he finally come to repentance? Did he remain stubborn and bitter over the Lord's sovereignty and compassion? We don't get an answer because the author is not so much interested in how Jonah responded but in how we respond today. Are we going to insist that we alone have the right to decide, to judge what good and evil are in salvation? At its root, the question that you and I are left to reckon with is, who is God? We are left to consider the nature of our Creator, to comprehend the message of His grace. For we are Jonah. We recognize ourselves in much of the story of this man's life, as brief an account as we have it of his life. And may we also recognize that we have even more to comprehend, more reason to comprehend God's teaching than Jonah did, because we have seen the ultimate act of the Father's compassion in the person and work of Christ. The Ninevites did deserve to die, and so did Jonah, and so do you and I. But instead, the Lord Jesus was ready to die, to show heaven's compassion toward us, Yes, whereas Jonah was ready to die rather than give up his belief that the Ninevites should be damned, Jesus was ready to die rather than give up his commitment that his people should be saved. 
Jonah was ready to die out of anger. Jesus was ready to die out of compassion. And the God of compassion revealed his gospel grace so powerfully on Golgotha. That is where Christ submitted himself to the Father's scorching wrath. He hung on the cross without shelter or shade to deliver us from our evil and to become our shelter from the judgment of God that we deserve. He even cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, they are torturing and killing me. But none of them, not even the Pharisees, really completely understand what they're doing. What a wonderful heart. He doesn't say that they're not guilty of wrongdoing. They are. Yet our Savior is also recognizing that they're confused and they're not really able to recognize the horror of what they're doing. Here is a perfect heart, perfect in generosity, in charity, in love. Jesus is the prophet Jonah should have been. And yet, of course, he is infinitely more. He didn't just weep for us. He bled and died for us. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness his condemnation, but Christ went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. And so now the son's righteous commitment to view the world through his father's compassionate eyes is credited to you by faith in place of your angry and rebellious hearts. It is this love and compassion that should convince us that God's love is good, that his wisdom is trustworthy, and his grace is right always. Like our passage, I do leave you with a question. Do you know your God's heartbeat. Meditate on the compassion of God. As you do so, it will open up your heart to abandon unrighteous anger and it will invite you to emerge from your self-made shelter in the burning wilderness. You will find true rest in your true home and refuge, Jesus himself. Like the song says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.